Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, The Illusion of Agency. In the LDS Church, the doctrine, the fundamental principle of agency or the freedom to choose is at the heart of Mormonism. Mormonism teaches that all of mankind existed pre-mortally in the spirit world. And that not only did they exist pre-mortally, but that they were present at a grand council in heaven before they came to this earth. And in that grand council, Heavenly Father put forth his plan as to how mankind could be saved. His plan required a savior, a redeemer, one to come to this earth and make an atonement. And Jesus Christ came forward and volunteered for the job. Lucifer, on the other hand, came forward with a different plan, what he argued was a better plan. But God said, no, we're not going to do Lucifer's plan. We're not going to go that route because that plan would deprive mankind of their freedom to choose. It would deprive humanity of their agency. And a third of the hosts of heaven sided with Satan and two thirds sided with God and Jesus. And there was a great war in heaven. This is the Mormon story about the Grand Council in heaven and the war in heaven, which was fought over the principle of agency. Now, what with Lucifer and his side being outnumbered two to one, I guess the outcome was pretty much a foregone conclusion. And Lucifer and his pals got beat and cast out of heaven and into the earth, where they roamed to and fro, seeking to destroy the souls of men. But I tell you this story to underscore how important the doctrine of free agency or freedom to choose is within Mormon doctrine. Now, this would normally not be a problem. In fact, it would be one of the highlights of the doctrines of the LDS Church, except for the fact that church leaders would rather be obeyed by the membership of the church. Giving them the reality of free agency would lead to situations where they were not obeyed, but giving them the illusion of free agency can ensure that members obey the leaders of the church while still allowing the leaders to give at least lip service to the doctrine of free agency. Over the decades, church leaders have come up with many different ways of providing members with the illusion of free agency while still enforcing their authoritarian control over every aspect of the members' lives. In this podcast, I want to explore some of those ways in which the LDS Church talks about free agency, gives the illusion of free agency, while nevertheless, in reality, providing the members with anything but free agency. One of the things that came to mind as I was preparing for this podcast was the fact that I used to be a magician and still am to this day somewhat of an amateur magician. Now, card tricks are a huge category of magic tricks. Playing cards are very popular. They're very common. They can be found in most households. That makes them a good prop to use in magic tricks. And there are a myriad of card tricks that have been developed and created over the years. Now, there are all sorts of card tricks. I'll be the first to tell you that. But I want to talk about a certain section of card tricks. And the section of card tricks that I want to talk about depends upon forcing the audience member, the spectator, to pick a card. Not just any card out of 52, but a preordained card that you as the magician already know what it is. And the whole point of this first part of the card trick, there's usually going to be something that happens after it, the reveal. But at the first part of the card trick, the point is to have the spectator select a certain card that you already know what it is, but to give them the illusion that they have the freedom to choose any of the 52 cards in the deck. This is what is called, in magic terms, 
a force or forcing a card. Because this is such an important principle to many card tricks, forcing a card, many different methods have been invented over the decades and even over the centuries as to how it is that you can make this happen, how you can force a spectator to pick a certain card that you already know what it is, but at the same time giving them the illusion that they have a completely free choice. And I as a magician know several ways to force a card. There are many different methods of doing it and any magician worth his or her salt probably has a number of ways in which to force a card. Let me start with a very simple example. The story is told of Houdini who by the way did do magic tricks separate and apart from escapes even though he became most famous for his escapes. But he did other tricks as well including card tricks and once again the story is told of how he and his wife Bess invited a couple that they knew, a married couple, over to their house for dinner and after dinner was over the married couple wanted to see some magic done by Houdini. Now Houdini did not happen to have any cards in his house so he sent the husband down the road to a shop where he could pick up a deck of playing cards. The husband did that, brought the deck back to the house, they broke the seal on that brand new deck of playing cards in front of everybody and Houdini now begins to shuffle the cards and as he's shuffling the cards he sees much to a surprise that his friend has actually bought not a regular deck of playing cards but inadvertently bought a trick deck of playing cards. Every single one of the 52 cards is an ace of spades. And once Houdini saw that his friend had made this mistake, you can bet that he performed some pretty amazing tricks that night in card magic. The story, at least as I remember it, does not say what tricks Houdini performed, but one can imagine him taking this 52 card deck, all of them aces of spades, shuffling them thoroughly and then fanning the cards from one hand to another and allowing his friend to have a completely free choice of any of the 52 cards. Now from Houdini's point of view, he knows that his friend has no free choice. No matter what card it is that his friend picks, it's going to be the ace of spades. He has no agency in this matter unless you want to say his agency was deciding which ace of spades he was going to choose. So from the magician's point of view, agency has been denied to the spectator. That's half of the trick. The other half of the trick is making it so the spectator believes that the spectator has complete freedom of choice. That is the illusion of agency to which I refer. Because no matter which card the spectator chose, it would end up being the ace of spades. Now that was just a remarkable coincidence that happened to Houdini. One does not need to have a deck that is made up entirely of aces of spades in order to be able to successfully force a spectator to choose a preordained and pre-selected card. There are trick decks that have been designed in order to facilitate exactly this and one of the most famous trick decks of this sort is called the Svengali deck. I won't go into the details of how the Svengali deck works but let's just say that the Svengali deck is designed to be able to show the spectator that all the cards in the Svengali deck are different and they're all mixed up but nevertheless when you give the spectator a completely free choice and I'm putting that in air quotes in case you can't hear it in my voice a completely free choice of any of those different and mixed up cards the magician already knows which card the spectator will choose. Let me go back briefly if I can to that magic trick that I described to you in an earlier podcast relating to Elder Green on my mission, my green bean with the last name Elder Green and how it was that I gave 
the missionaries in the apartment a completely free choice of any card. Then the name of that card was written on a piece of paper. The paper was folded up and then set fire to. And then I took the ashes from that piece of paper and rubbed it across my bare forearm. And magically, the name of the card that was selected freely, by the way, freely selected, appeared on the skin of my bare forearm in the ash that I was rubbing back and forth along it. And you remember that I told the story about how Elder Green actually believed the explanation I was giving that this was done by psychic force and by the concentration of all the missionaries on the name of the card and that's what made it appear in the ash on my forearm. And that Elder Green attempted to do the same trick the next night with humorous results. Elder Green managed to make a big mess of the ashes in the kitchen but no name of any card appeared on his forearm. Now even though it did not occur to Elder Green let me go ahead and break it to you that I already knew before the trick even commenced what the card was that was going to be selected by the missionaries. How could that possibly be, you might ask? I used a regular deck of cards, 52 different cards. They were all shuffled prior to the selection, but then I went through a certain method of having the missionary select a card completely freely and completely at random, and yet I knew beforehand what card it was they would select. So what that means is they did not have a free choice of what card it was they would select. It only appeared that they had a free choice of any card. I already knew what card it was that they selected and if I didn't know what card it was that they were going to select, if I didn't already have a method by which I was going to force them to choose a certain card that I already knew, the name of the card would have had a difficult time appearing in the ash on my forearm. So once again, this is an example of the illusion of agency. I made them pick a certain card. They didn't know I made them pick a card because from their point of view, it looked for all intents and purposes like they had a completely free choice. And as I've been thinking about the different methods that magicians have of forcing spectators to choose a certain card, it made me think that this whole process is analogous to the methods that the church has of giving its members the illusion that they have a free choice, but controlling the fact that whatever choice the members freely make is the choice that the leaders of the church want them to make. And when it comes to the LDS church, we're not talking about pick a card, any card. What we're talking about is pick a choice, any choice. And anytime there is a choice between doing what the church leaders tell the members to do and a choice to do something different than what the leaders of the church tell the members of the church to do, the leaders of the church obviously want the members of the church to choose the former and not choose the latter. Therefore, making the choice of following what the church leaders say is like forcing a card. You want to force them to choose that card, but you also at the same time want to give them the illusion that they are making that choice freely. And just as magicians have many different methods of forcing a spectator to take a card, so leaders of the church also have many different methods of forcing members to choose to follow them. Now the first method that comes to mind has to do with the sustaining of church officers, whether this is done in general conference or whether it's done on a local level in the ward conferences or the state conferences of the church. The first thing that's important to do is to not give the members any time to think about the choice that they're going to make. If members had advance notice on what the decisions were going to be or the people who are going to be put up for sustaining votes in conferences, whether ward stake or general conferences, they might be able to do some research, they might be able to do some reflection, they might be able to do some remembering about encounters or experiences they may have had with this particular person and be able to come up with reasons 
why it is that this person would not be a good pick for that particular calling. Now, I hope I'm not revealing too much about the magic arts by telling you that frequently, not all the time, but frequently when I am forcing a spectator to choose a particular card or a particular item, if it's a different trick than a card trick, yes, forces can apply in tricks other than card tricks, that I tell the spectator that they should not think too much about the selection they're making. They should not let their mental faculties take over to the degree that they're thinking too much about what they're doing, but simply pick at random and pick the first choice that comes to their mind. The entire idea, of course, is to get them to not think too closely about the decision they're making, to rush them through it, with the result that they will pick the card I want them to pick. So the process that the LDS Church uses of not letting the audience know who it is they're putting forward for a certain calling until immediately before they're asking for a sustaining vote from the membership does have a corollary in magic, in the methods a magician uses in order to force a spectator to pick a certain card. It is also important to not give the members of the church a real choice. In other words, there are not multiple people who are put up for sustaining votes for any particular calling. Instead, that choice has already been taken out of the members' hands way in advance by the people behind the scenes. When the time comes for a sustaining vote, we don't have Brother A, Brother B, Brother C, Brother D, and Brother E put up for a certain calling and then the members get to vote on which one they would like most. Instead, only one individual is put up for a specific calling and so the member has to either choose yes or no on that particular person. You can see how the system is set up to restrict the ability of a person to make a choice. And indeed, even above and beyond that, it is made clear to the members of the church that the correct vote is to vote for this person because the members of the church understand that the leaders of the church are led and inspired by God in their choice of this person. Therefore, this is not just a person at random who's put forward for a sustaining vote. This is not even just someone that the leadership of the church thinks would be a good idea for this particular position. Instead, the members of the church are led to understand that it is God's will that this particular person fill this particular calling. And therefore, when the members vote to sustain this member, they are voting to sustain not the person, not the leadership, but they are voting to sustain God Almighty. If they vote yes, then they are on God's side. If they vote no, then they are against God and against God's revelation as expressed through God's leadership. And indeed, when a person's put up for a certain calling and the membership is called on to vote for that person, the language of what's going on there has been changed over the years such that this is no longer considered a vote for this person to take that office. Instead, it is a vote to sustain that person in that office. That's why they call it a sustaining vote because your vote means nothing as to whether they're going to fill that position or not. That has already been determined beforehand. Your vote makes no difference. Your vote now is characterized as simply something that demonstrates whether you are going to sustain this person in their calling and further whether you are going to sustain the leaders of the church in having the correct revelation to call this person to that position and finally whether you sustain God Almighty himself for having called this person to this position through the leaders of the church. So now everything has been turned on its head. No longer are we voting for whether we want a particular person to be in a particular calling. No, now our vote is to signify to everybody else whether we are in tune with God, whether we will sustain God, and whether we will sustain the leaders of the church in calling this person to this particular position. And therefore, the law of common consent 
as originally established in the LDS Church, is no longer about voting for people to fill certain callings. Instead, it is now a referendum on whether we as members of the church sustain the leaders of the church in making the calling in the first place. And because Mormons understand that leaders of the church are led by revelation from God, that is why the voting in all general conferences, whether it is local or general, the voting is unanimous, or at least virtually unanimous. Every now and again, some brave soul will stand up and voice a dissenting vote. But what happens when a person registers a dissenting vote? Well, frankly, it doesn't matter at all. Everything continues as it was preordained to continue. The person for whom negative votes have been registered still takes their position in the calling. And today, the people who register the negative votes are directed to go to their local state president and explain their concerns to him. The general leadership of the church really could not care less as to what it is the members of the church have to say or how they vote when it comes to general conference. And as I mentioned before, in the April 2020 general conference, the one just passed, the leaders of the church made it abundantly clear that they don't care how the members of the church vote. They're going to go ahead and do what it is they want to do anyway. And the reason I say that is because there were no members of the church who were present during general conference. This was the general conference during the coronavirus pandemic when they did not have the members come to the general conference center. In fact, they held the general conference itself in a small room in the church office building where there was nobody present except for the speakers and perhaps the people who were running the cameras. And this was broadcast to all the membership of the church who were sitting at home, sheltering at home because of the coronavirus pandemic. And so even though the leaders of the church had no idea of how it was that the members of the church were voting when it came to the sustaining of the officers of the church, they had no idea because they couldn't see the members. They couldn't even see the thousands of members present in the General Conference Center. They can't see any of them, except for the ones running the cameras, in the back of the room. But it did not stop them from plowing forward. They went ahead, they put up all the names of all the general authorities of the church. They released some, they called some more, they called for a sustaining vote. They couldn't see how anybody voted and yet they went forward anyway. If I ever had any doubt of the fact that calling for a sustaining vote in general conference for the leaders of the church was completely meaningless to the leaders of the church, those doubts were resolved in the April 2020 general conference. It would be as if there were a federal election in the United States for president or for the House of Representatives or for the Senate. But at the end of the election, the leaders of the country decided they didn't really need to read the votes anyway. They weren't concerned as to how the people voted. They were just going to go ahead and put in the people that they wanted to put in, regardless of how the people voted. So getting back to my theme, this is one of the ways in which the church has now given the illusion of agency to its members while nevertheless going forward and doing exactly what it is that the leaders want to do anyway. They're not forcing a playing card in this case. They're forcing church leaders and other individuals to fill certain spots and positions. They are forcing the members of the church to choose the person that the leaders of the church want them to choose. Another way that leaders of the church have of forcing the members to follow them and to do what they want them to do is by assigning punishments to the members of the church who choose differently. Now, this concept was put forward very clearly by Elder Ezra Taft Benson 
in his 14 Fundamentals of Following the Prophet's Speech. I did an entire episode on that speech, but if you will recall, the 14th Fundamental has to do with the President of the Church and the First Presidency. Follow them and be blessed or reject their counsel and suffer. So there is a punishment that the church now has affixed to not following the counsel of the leaders of the church. Now, regardless of whether that is true, that there is some kind of punishment that will be experienced by a member who does not follow the counsel of the leaders of the church, regardless of whether that is true, I just want to back up for a second and look at that scenario and simply comment on the fact that that makes it so it is not a free choice. If you have a binary choice, you can either do one thing or not do one thing. And if you do the one thing, then you're going to get a reward. And if you don't do that thing, then you're going to get a punishment. You're going to suffer. That is by definition, not a free choice. You are stacking the deck, if you'll pardon the pun. It would be like saying that we in the United States have the freedom to choose whether we will pay our income tax to the federal government. Now, in a theoretical sense, yeah, we got the freedom to choose whether we will do that. But the fact is, if we don't do it, if we choose to not pay our income tax to the federal government, then we will be punished by the federal government for not paying the taxes. And we will end up likely being charged with a crime and potentially going to prison. Well, you could say that we had the freedom to make the choice and the natural consequence of not choosing to pay our taxes was to go to prison. But that's just theoretical. The real actuality is that if there is a punishment that is affixed to not doing something, then we are stacking the deck. It is no longer a free choice of paying our taxes or not paying our taxes. If it were a free choice, we could pay our taxes or not pay our taxes without experiencing any punishment either way. That would be a free choice. Then the choice that we made would be an outward expression of what we really think, what we really believe, what we really want, and what we really value. And presumably, that's what God would be interested in. And presumably, that's what leaders of the church would be interested in. But the fact of the matter is, it is not what the leaders of the church are interested in, and that is why they stack the deck. And that is why they attach punishments to choosing to do something other than to follow their counsel. It's sort of like putting a gun to a guy's head and telling him that he has to go rob a liquor store or you will shoot him, and then arguing that this poor sap had the freedom to choose whether he would rob the liquor store or not. Yes, he still had the choice theoretically, but if he's going to get shot in the head if he doesn't, then it's not really that free a choice after all, is it? What it is is coercion, and when you coerce somebody to make a choice, it's no longer free. And this is made very clear in what is called the Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood. It's found in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It applies specifically to the receipt of the Melchizedek Priesthood. And I remember going over this passage in section 84 with my bishop, Bishop Murphy, back in 1979. When I had been a member of the church for a year, I was getting ready to go on my mission and I was going to receive the Melchizedek Priesthood. So let me read this to you because this is another example, an excellent example of the Hobson's choice that the church puts people in. And this has to do with receiving the Melchizedek Priesthood. It is not a free choice to receive the Melchizedek Priesthood or to not receive the Melchizedek Priesthood. I mean, we understand that you have to have the Melchizedek Priesthood to go on a mission, and therefore there is certainly an impetus to receiving it if you want to go on a mission. That much is already present. But once you get to the point where you are old enough to receive, as a young man in the LDS Church, the Melchizedek Priesthood, and it is offered to you, now you cannot even 
reject it. You don't even have the freedom of choice of saying, no thanks, I'd rather not have the Melchizedek priesthood because if you reject it, then God pronounces suffering upon you. It's called a woe, W-O, here in this passage. Starting in verse 33 of section 84, for whoso is faithful unto the obtaining these two priesthoods, that's Aaronic and Melchizedek, of which I have spoken, and the magnifying their calling, are sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies. Okay, so that's the good thing that happens to those who receive the priesthoods and magnify their callings in those priesthoods. That's the carrot part of the equation. They become the sons of Moses and of Aaron and the seed of Abraham and the church and kingdom and the elect of God. So that's more good stuff that happens. And also, all they who receive this priesthood receive me, saith the Lord. For he that receiveth my servants receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth my father, and he that receiveth my father receiveth my father's kingdom. Therefore, all that my father hath shall be given unto him. Okay, so that is a big carrot. That's a big Twinkie. Well, let's say this Twinkie represents the normal amount of psychokinetic energy in the New York area. According to this morning's sample, it would be a Twinkie 35 feet long, weighing approximately 600 pounds. (coughs) That's a big Twinkie. That's a big Twinkie that a person receives by receiving the priesthood, including the Melchizedek priesthood, and magnifying their callings in it. So that is a huge plus, but there's a negative associated to not receiving it. And that's what is described here, starting in verse 39. And this is according to the oath and covenant which belongeth to the priesthood. Therefore, all those who receive the priesthood receive this oath and covenant of my father, which he cannot break, neither can it be moved. But whoso breaketh this covenant after he hath received it, and altogether turneth therefrom, shall not have forgiveness of sins in this world, nor in the world to come. Now that is a huge warning flag related to this priesthood. There's an upside to it, but there's also a downside that once you receive the priesthood, if you break that covenant and altogether turn therefrom, then you are in deep doo-doo. You will not have forgiveness of sins in this world, nor in the world to come. Things are looking pretty bleak. So a person at this point Understanding all of this stuff about the pros and cons of the priesthood could make a reasonable decision and say, hey, look, that sounds great, but I think the downside to that may be a little bit more than the upside. I'm not sure I can keep all those obligations that you're talking about here, which you haven't really specified, but have talked about in general terms, magnifying the callings that you're going to get in these priesthoods. It sounds good, but I think maybe I'd rather just pass on this whole priesthood thing if it's all the same to you. Well, no, because verse 42 now comes along and takes care of that option. It removes that from the table. It assigns a punishment. If you reject the ability to have the priesthood, that's verse 42, and woe unto all those who come not unto this priesthood, which ye have received, which I now confirm upon you who are present this day by mine own voice out of the heavens, and even I have given the heavenly host and mine angel charge concerning you. So that option is removed from the table. You see how this works. Woe unto all those who come not unto this priesthood. So the option of not accepting the priesthood, deciding that maybe you don't want to go along with the program in this regard, is removed from the table as well because a punishment will be assigned to you if you do not accept the priesthood. It is called a woe, W-O here, in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, verse 42. So there's three possibilities, right? One possibility is you accept the priesthood and you magnify your callings. You do everything you're supposed to do and you're going to get great stuff given to you. That is a promise. That is the carrot. Or you can accept the priesthood 
and not do everything you're supposed to do. And if you turn entirely therefrom, you will not receive forgiveness of sins in this world or in the world to come. So that's bad. But if knowing all this, if understanding the oath and covenant of the priesthood, as it is described in section 84, you decide, no, I think I'd rather not accept the priesthood under those terms, then that's the third possibility. But you will be punished if you don't even enter into the agreement. So this is the way that out of three options, the person, the spectator, me in this instance back in 1979, is forced into the option that the church wants them to choose. They are forced to make the correct choice. They are forced to choose the ace of spades. And the ace of spades here is accepting the priesthood and then after that fulfilling all of your callings and doing everything that you're supposed to do. That is the choice the church wants you to make and therefore that is the choice that is forced upon you. This is not a free choice. This is not free agency. This is higher end salary. (laughs) And let me tell you another magic trick that has to do with cards. I won't describe the whole thing, but basically you come to the point in the trick where a spectator has chosen one card. They've chosen it freely. They've chosen it at random. And in fact, they haven't even picked a card out physically. They have just picked it mentally and they have focused on that card. And now it is one of 21 cards and I lay all 21 cards out face down on the table. The spectator doesn't even know where their card is. The spectator only knows the name of their card and that it is one of the 21 face down cards on the table. Now, unbeknownst to the spectator, I not only know what the name of the card is, I also know exactly which one of those face down 21 cards on the table their card is. But now we get to the second part of the trick and what I want them to do is I want them to choose one card out of all 21 face down cards. And not only that, of course I want them to choose their card. Now they don't even know which card is their card. How am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? Well, trust me, I do it very well. (laughs) And anybody could do it if you know how to go about it. And this is one of those instances where you don't give the spectator a lot of time to think about the decisions they're making. You kind of hurry them through it in order to successfully force them to choose the card you want them to select. And all you do is give them a series of binary choices. And believe me, at the end of it, they have picked one card out of 21 cards. They have the illusion of agency. They believe it was a completely free choice that they made. Meanwhile, I was controlling it at every step of the way. I asked them to name their card that they had chosen. They name it. I tell them to turn over that card that they have selected. They turn it over. And wow, how on earth could they have selected their card face down when they didn't even know which card it was? Well, that is the magic of it. That is the illusion of it. And that's how you force a spectator to choose a card. It's very similar to this idea with the Melchizedek priesthood and receiving the priesthoods talked about in the Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood. Except, if I were doing this card trick like the Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood, anytime they picked a card that was different than the one I wanted them to pick, I would reach out and I would slap them across the face. There would actually be a punishment associated with it. It would be like the opening scene in Ghostbusters where Venkman is administering electric shocks to people who make the wrong choice of what ESP card he's holding. Hey! I'm getting a little tired of this. You volunteered, didn't you? We're paying you, aren't we? Yeah, but I didn't know you were going to be giving me electric shocks. What are you trying to prove here anyway? I'm studying the effect of negative reinforcement on ESP ability. The effect? I'll tell you what the effect is. It's pissing me off. 
Well, then maybe my theory is correct. You can keep the five bucks I've had. I will, mister. I don't do that because if I were actually doing that in the context of a card trick and trying to get somebody to choose which card I wanted them to out of 21 face down cards and anytime they picked one that was not the one I wanted them to, I would smack them in the face. It would be pretty darn obvious, wouldn't it, that I'm forcing them to choose the card that I want them to choose? Why else would I be slapping them in the face otherwise? I mean, the reason I don't slap them in the face is because I want to make it look like they have a free choice. If I slap them in the face when they do something I don't want them to do, it's obvious they don't have a free choice, except theoretically. And yet that's exactly what I see happening here in the Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood. And the reason I remember it so well is because I remember commenting on this with my bishop, when he went over the Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood with me, because I remember being a bit overwhelmed with what it was that was being required of me by accepting this priesthood and thinking, maybe that's not something I want to do. And I mentioned that to the bishop, and then he read to me verse 42, letting me know there was no way out at this point. I had come to the point where it was being offered to me, either I accepted it and fulfilled it, or something bad was going to happen to me. I no longer had the option of not accepting it, because that would mean woe unto me, in the words of verse 42. Remember, a rat in a maze is free to go wherever the rat wants to, as long as he stays in the maze. Another way the LDS Church takes away the agency and the freedom to choose from its members is by strategically withholding certain information from them. In other words, the leaders of the church influence the ability of the members to make a free choice about whether to accept the restored gospel or not accept the restored gospel, about whether to continue faithful or not continue faithful in the LDS church by strategically giving them or withholding from them certain information. The information that is given to them will lead them to continue faithful. The information that is strategically withheld from them is information that could potentially lead them out of the church. And this is something I wrote on the subject back in 2014. It was originally entitled, The Last Temptation of Satan, which dealt with this very issue. I want to perform it for you now. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has long had three missions, perfecting the saints, proclaiming the gospel, and redeeming the dead. We all know those missions of the church. A fourth was recently added, caring for the poor and needy. But all along, the LDS Church has had a fifth mission. And what is that fifth mission? Suppressing the truth. What truth is it the LDS Church actively suppresses? And the answer to that is any information that reflects negatively on church leaders, or on its history, or on its doctrine, or on its practices. Why does the LDS Church suppress the truth? Because it may negatively impact the testimony of its members and prevent them from being saved in the kingdom of heaven. But does the suppression of truth have other consequences? Yes, it does. And are some of these other consequences problematic? Yes, they are. Specifically, the most serious consequence of suppressing the truth is the impact it has on the agency of humankind. The next section is titled, Does the Fifth Mission Destroy the Agency of Man? People primarily base their decisions on information. Sometimes the information on which they act is incomplete. Sometimes it is just plain wrong. But most would generally agree that the more information a person has, the more likely a good decision can be made. The fifth mission of suppressing the truth Make sure we get only one side of the story, the faith-promoting side. There are no grays in the LDS Church, only black and white. The Church wants to make sure we hear only the white. 
no element of black will be allowed to seep through. All information that does not conform with the faithful narrative is systematically suppressed, excised, and removed from the narrative. The tools for this mission are not fire and the sword, but whiteout and the shredder. Because the church allows only the faithful side of the story to be told, people will necessarily choose to follow the restored gospel and be saved in the kingdom of heaven. They could choose nothing else. They would be unaware that any other choice could be made. Are there problems with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Historical anomalies and even contradictions? There are. But with this fifth mission in mind, nobody need know about them. The Church will sweep them under the rug so they do not detract from anybody's testimony. LDS leaders would make of their church a new Garden of Eden, but with the Tree of Knowledge removed. The LDS Church would become one long episode of The Outer Limits. You remember the TV show The Outer Limits? Every week it would start with the following words. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. If we wish to make it louder, we will bring up the volume. If we wish to make it softer, we will tune it to a whisper. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can roll the image, make it flutter. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your television set. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. If salvation can be accomplished only by suppressing the other side of the story, so be it. If people can't make an informed decision because they know only one version of the facts, it is a small price to pay. If the church has to destroy the agency of man in order to save them, who can complain? The ends justify the means. At least this seems to be the position of church leaders. And what should happen if, in spite of the church's best efforts, a member begins to ask difficult questions, questions that challenge the one-sided narrative promoted by the church. She will be told to sit down and shut up. Politely, of course, church leaders are, above all, gentlemen. But if she refuses to be silent, she must be culled from the herd in order to prevent her disease from spreading. She will be branded with a scarlet A as a warning to the other sheep to not go and do thou likewise. The church will not leave the ninety and nine to go after the one. It will send a sniper up a tower to take out the one. Remarkably, not only does the LDS church have a long and established track record of suppressing the truth, church leaders have from time to time actually said this is exactly what they are doing. Under this heading, let us examine statements from three current apostles of the LDS Church. The first apostle is Boyd K. Packer. Of course, he has since passed away. But we begin with his famous talk title, The Mantle is Far, Far Greater Than the Intellect, given in 1981, where, in speaking to the church educational instructors, 
Boyd K. Packer said, quote, Church history can be so interesting and so inspiring as to be a very powerful tool indeed for building faith. If not properly written or properly taught, it may be a faith destroyer. There is a temptation, he goes on, there is a temptation for the writer or the teacher of church history to want to tell everything, whether it is worthy or faith-promoting. Some things that are true are not very useful. And you can find that quote from his talk in the 1981 BYU Studies, Volume 21, Number 3, pages 259 through 271. But please understand, this is not simply an artifact from 40 years ago. It is still currently found on the church's website and, in fact, is required reading for all seminary teachers. Just go to the LDS Church website and type in, The mantle is far, far greater than the intellect, and you will see exactly what it is I'm talking about. Notable in this quotation is the tacit admission that church history may be a faith destroyer if all the truth is told. Remember, he said, if not properly written or properly taught, church history may be a faith destroyer. The injunction is to teach only one side of the story, the side that is a very powerful tool indeed for building faith. Unspoken and unwritten must be those truths that are not very useful. The temptation is to tell everything. The ability to choose must be restricted by providing members access to only one side of the story, to only one set of facts. If their agency is destroyed by so doing, it is a small price to pay for building faith. In his defense, Elder Packer is not willing to do something to others that he is not willing to do himself. If he will attempt to deprive others of free agency, he will set the example and show the way. In a 1976 General Conference address, Elder Packer said this, Now, my young friends, I would like to make reference to another experience, one I think of often, but one I seldom talk about. I shall not mention it in detail. I only want to refer to it. It happened many years ago when I was perhaps not quite as young as you are now, and it had to do with my decision to follow that guide. I knew what agency was and knew how important it was to be individual and to be independent, to be free. I somehow knew there was one thing the Lord would never take from me, and that was my free agency. I would not surrender my agency to any being but to Him. I determined that I would give Him the one thing that He would never take—my agency. I decided by myself that from that time on I would do things His way. That was a great trial for me. For I thought I was giving away the most precious thing I possessed. I was not wise enough in my youth to know that because I exercised my agency and decided myself, I was not losing it. It was strengthened. One can only imagine God's reaction to such an act on Elder Packer's part, or on anybody's part for that matter. What God would not allow Satan to do to others, Elder Packer did to himself. In response to the issue that sparked a war in heaven, 
Elder Packer laid down his arms and surrendered. God, who liberated the captives by the spilling of his own blood, finds them voluntarily putting their chains back on. But Elder Packer is not alone in proclaiming he wants only one side of the story to be portrayed, the faith-promoting side. Elder Dallin H. Oaks bears his apostolic witness that any contradictory facts, though true, must be suppressed. My duty as a member of the Council of the Twelve, said Elder Oaks, my duty as a member of the Council of the Twelve is to protect what is most unique about the LDS Church, namely the authority of the priesthood, testimony regarding the restoration of the gospel, and the divine mission of the Savior. So Elder Oaks, now President Oaks, says that his duty as a member of the Council of the Twelve is to protect what is most unique about the LDS Church. He goes on to state what he will do in order to protect the LDS Church. Quote, Everything may be sacrificed in order to maintain the integrity of those essential facts. Now that is a remarkable quote, and I want to give you the source for that quote because it's a bit complicated. The first source for this quote is Robert D. Anderson's book, Inside the Mind of Joseph Smith, Psychobiography and the Book of Mormon. That was published by Signature Books in 1999. It's in the introduction, page 43, footnote 28. But it should be observed that the footnote reference for this quote is not directly to Elder Oaks. Rather, it is to a talk by Linda King Newell titled The Biography of Emma Hale Smith. This is a talk that Linda King Newell gave at the 1992 Pacific Northwest Sunstone Symposium, audio tape number J976. I do not have access to this audio tape, and therefore I am unable to ascertain the source Ms. Newell cites. To the best of my knowledge, however, Elder Oaks has never denied making this statement, though it has now been in print for over 20 years. If that were the only quote from Elder Oaks on the subject, it might be rendered in question due to the difficulty I have of ascertaining the source. However, he went on in a number of other venues and made similar comments, and therefore I feel pretty safe in presuming that this first quote from Elder Oaks is correct. This quote raises several questions. Is this why Elder Oaks seeks to suppress any criticism of church leaders? Because everything may be sacrificed, in his words, everything may be sacrificed in order to maintain their integrity? Going on to another quote, which we can directly attribute to Elder Oaks. In 1985, Elder Oaks gave the keynote address to the Church Education System Symposium on the Doctrine and Covenants and Church History. In his address, Elder Oaks echoed the same sentiments that Elder Packer had given four years before when Elder Packer addressed the church educational system employees. Here's what Elder Oaks said in 1985. Criticism is particularly objectionable when it is directed toward church authorities, general or local. Jude condemns those who speak evil of dignities. That's Jude 8. Evil speaking of the Lord's anointed is in a class by itself. It is one thing to depreciate a person who exercises corporate power or even government power. It is quite another thing to criticize or depreciate a person for the performance of an office to which he or she has been called of God. It does not matter that the criticism is true. This comment is from the talk by Elder Oaks titled Reading Church History, 
delivered at the CES Doctrine and Covenant Symposium at BYU on August 16, 1985. In this quote, Elder Oaks seeks to draw a distinction between criticizing a political leader, which is okay in his book, or criticizing a person who is a corporate leader, which is okay in his book. However, according to Elder Oaks, it is quite another thing to criticize a leader of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's what he means when he says it is quite another thing to criticize or depreciate a person for the performance of an office to which he or she has been called of God. It does not matter that the criticism is true. So regardless of whether your criticism of a church leader is true, Elder Oaks is of the position that leaders of the LDS Church are literally beyond reproach. Two years later, in the Enzyme magazine, the February 1987 issue, Elder Oaks adds the following, quote, Truth surely exists as an absolute, but our use of truth should be disciplined by other values. So truth of itself is not a virtue unalloyed by other values. There are other values apparently that determine whether we should speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Elder Oaks goes on, when truth is constrained by other virtues, the outcome is not falsehood, but silence for a season. So if we know something that's true about the church, but that reflects negatively on it or might be damaging to the faith of members, we need to be silent about it. He says silence for a season. He doesn't say when that season is going to be over. And in fact, one gets the idea that that season will never be over as far as Elder Oaks is concerned. We must always be silent about truths we know about the church that reflect poorly upon it or upon its leaders. Going back to the 1985 CES address, Elder Oaks says the following, Balance is telling both sides. This is not the mission of official church literature. Number five, balance. Balance is not to be expected in either official Mormon or avowedly anti-Mormon literature. Neither has any responsibility to present both sides. Now, that is a remarkable quote. And once again, the context, the immediate context of this is Elder Oaks is addressing the CES employees at a symposium in 1985. But the broader context is everything that's going on in the mid-1980s relating to Mark Hoffman and the information that is leaking out about his dealings with the church that puts the church in a bad light. And the media is having a heyday with this and running stories about the LDS Church, how they sought to suppress documents by buying them from Mark Hoffman and then hiding them away from the public and away from the membership of the church and thereafter only releasing them publicly once the existence of those documents had been leaked to the press. There were many other things going on that reflected poorly about the church in the context of the Mark Hoffman affair. But this is the broader context in which Elder Oaks is making these statements. And in this part of his talk, he is basically complaining about what he perceives as unfair treatment by the press of the LDS Church. And he excoriates the press saying they're only telling one side of the story. They should be telling both sides of the story. They should be telling the side of the story that reflects well on the church as well as the side of the story that reflects poorly on the church. But it is in the context of all of the stuff that is going on that Elder Oaks makes the startling revelation that it is not the mission of official church literature to tell both sides of the story. I'm going to replay that same quote again with a little bit more added to give you the context so you can see what it is I'm talking about. Play the tape. Number five, balance. Balance.
response is not to be expected in either official Mormon or avowedly anti-Mormon literature. Neither has any responsibility to present both sides. But when supposedly objective news media or periodicals run a feature or an article on the church or its doctrines, it ought to be balanced. So should a book-length history or biography. Readers of supposedly objective authors and publishers have a right to expect balance in writing about the church and its doctrines. Some such writing is balanced, but much is not. In this arena, readers should beware of writings that imply balance but do not deliver it. Balance is telling both sides, is what he says. That's what the media should do. That's what the press should do. But as far as the church goes, the church is under no obligation to tell both sides of the story. He says this is not the mission of official church literature. So here he makes the admission that official church literature, the correlated curriculum, everything that is said by general authorities and general conference, everything that is published for consumption by the members of the church at church meetings is one-sided. It tells only one side of the story. It is not balanced. It tells only the faith-promoting side of the story. And here Elder Oaks tells us, point blank, that's exactly the position of the church. That's exactly what's going on. And that if you want to hear balance about church history, then you should not go to the LDS church because you will not find balance there. All of these comments by Elder Oaks make for a jarring juxtaposition with what the LDS Church teaches about honesty in its Gospel Principles Manual. Here's what the LDS Church says about honesty there. Quote, there are many other forms of lying. When we speak untruths, we are guilty of lying. Well, that much is obvious, but it goes on. We can also intentionally deceive others by a gesture or a look, by silence, Wait a second, what did he say about silence for a season? Oh yeah, by silence or by telling only part of the truth. Whenever we lead people in any way to believe something that is not true, we are not being honest. The manual goes on. Satan encourages us to justify our lies to ourselves. Honest people will recognize Satan's temptations and will speak the whole truth even if it seems to be to their disadvantage. That's actually what the Gospel Principles Manual says. And that's why I say that this quote from the Gospel Principles Manual makes for a jarring juxtaposition when you compare it with what Elder Oaks says, as I have quoted above. What did the Gospel Principles Manual just say? That Satan tempts people to not speak the whole truth? Is Elder Oaks resisting this temptation, or is he succumbing to it? And if Elder Oaks is committed to telling only one side of the story... Is he justified in so doing as long as his goal is the salvation of his audience? And once again, I thought it was very interesting that the Gospel Principles Manual states that we can also intentionally deceive others by a gesture or a look, by silence. We can intentionally deceive others by silence. And yet, in the February 1987 Enzyme Magazine article, President Oak states, when truth is constrained by other virtues, the outcome is not falsehood, but silence for a season. So there, Elder Oak says that if you're silent about some things that are true, it's not a falsehood. The manual says that we can intentionally deceive others by silence. 
This seems to be a complete contradiction between Elder Oaks and the Gospel Principles Manual. So now we've covered statements by Elder Packer, Elder Oaks, and now we get to our third example of a church leader talking about actively, intentionally keeping the truth from the members of the church. And this is none other than Elder Russell M. Nelson. At the time I wrote this in 2014, he was just Elder Russell M. Nelson. He now is, of course, in the first week of June 2020 when I'm recording this, the president of the LDS Church. Even Elder Nelson has gotten into the act. I say even Elder Nelson because while Elders Packer and Oaks have long come across as crusty and curmudgeonly, Elder Nelson has always struck me as bright, warm, and chipper. Regardless of the tune, the lyrics to the same song come through loud and clear. In a talk ironically titled, Truth and More, Elder Nelson solemnly warns, quote, anyone who because of truth may be tempted to become a dissenter against the Lord and his anointed. That's from the Enzyme magazine, January of 1986. Once again, Elder Nelson warns anyone who, because of truth, may be tempted to become a dissenter against the Lord and his anointed. Now, we all know that when Elder Nelson talks about the Lord's anointed, he is referring to church leadership. He's referring to himself in the third person. For Elder Nelson, It seems that when the choice comes down to truth or sustaining the Lord's anointed, it is always truth that must be sacrificed on the altar of devotion to church leaders. Lending a touch of the surreal to his address, Elder Nelson quotes all four verses from a famous LDS hymn, including the line, Yes, say what is truth, tis the brightest prize to which mortals or gods can aspire. Elder Nelson does not want his audience to misunderstand him. He goes on and states, I do not decry the revealing of negative information per se. Well, of course not. That would be preposterous to decry the revealing of negative information per se. But Elder Nelson is clear that what he decries is only the revealing of negative information about leaders and specifically church leaders. His warning is only for any who are tempted to rake through the annals of history to use truth unrighteously or to dig up facts with the intent to defame or destroy. Elder Nelson does not explain why he feels constrained to put both the words truth and facts in quotation marks, and yet he does so in this article. Truth doesn't generally have to have quotation marks. Facts don't generally have to have quotation marks. Unless he is trying to signal to his audience that what he's talking about is not really truth and the facts he's talking about are not really facts. If he isn't making himself sufficiently clear yet, Elder Nelson goes on. We now live in a season in which some self-serving historians grovel for truth. Again, truth is put in quotation marks. Elder Nelson does not explain how one grovels for truth. But he does go on. We now live in a season in which some self-serving historians grovel for truth that would defame the dead and the defenseless. Some may be tempted to undermine what is sacred to others or diminish the esteem of honored names or demean the efforts of revered individuals. That's the end of that quote from Elder Nelson, now President Nelson. To tell the full truth, according to Elder Nelson, is the temptation. Elder Nelson apparently does not see it as a temptation to keep quiet about the truth that would give a fuller 
and more accurate picture. This use of the word temptation is strategically used not only by Elder Nelson, but also by Elder Packer. A temptation is generally something that we receive from the adversary, from Lucifer, from, dare I say it, Satan. It is Satan who tempts us to tell the full truth according to these church leaders. But that is a temptation that we must resist, and we must be silent about those truths that reflect negatively on the church or its leaders. What was it that Gospel Principles Manual said again? Oh yeah, honest people will recognize Satan's temptations and will speak the whole truth, even if it seems to be to their disadvantage. I almost forgot the Gospel Principles Manual has a very different message and what I think is a more accurate message and a message I would encourage the leaders of the church to pay attention to and to follow, that the temptation is to not speak the whole truth, even if it seems to be to their disadvantage. That's what the Gospel Principles Manual says. And finally, Elder Nelson agrees with Elder Oaks that the best course in dealing with problematic truths is not to deal with them at all, to simply be quiet about them. Here's the final quote I'm going to give from Elder Nelson's article. In the January 1986 Enzyme Magazine, once again, that article titled, Truth and More. Here's that last quote. Indeed, in some instances, the merciful companion to truth is silence. Some truths are best left unsaid. Yes, he actually says that. That's from the president of the church, President Russell M. Nelson. Some truths are best left unsaid. So even though Elder Packer is the one who is famous for saying some things that are true are not very useful, we see the exact same sentiment repeated by Elder Dallin H. Oaks, the current first counselor in the first presidency, when he said in 1987, when truth is constrained by other virtues, the outcome is not falsehood, but silence for a season. See how he's saying the exact same thing as Elder Packer. Some truths are not very useful. The unuseful truths we need to be silent about. And Elder Russell M. Nelson, the current president of the LDS Church, says the exact same thing in different words. Quote, indeed, in some instances, well, I think we all know what those instances are, don't we? Indeed, in some instances, the merciful companion to truth is silence. Some truths are best left unsaid. Once again, the name of Elder Nelson's talk was Truth and More, but considering its content, a more appropriate title might have been Truth and Less. Back in the summer of 2014, when I wrote this piece, there was a spate of high-profile excommunications and disciplinary proceedings against members of the church who were vocal and public in their criticisms of the leadership. In that context, the church released a statement saying that members are always free to ask questions about church doctrine, history, or practice. Church spokesperson Ali Isom followed suit and said the same thing. There are many avenues, she said, to express that and discuss our doubts and opinions. So the front the church is putting out there to the public is that the church is a place where people are always free to ask questions about church doctrine, history, or practice, and there are many avenues to express those questions and discuss those doubts and opinions. But isn't this a little like Charlie Brown trusting Lucy one more time to hold that football so he can kick it? Of what use is the freedom to ask questions when church leaders have told us in advance the answers will not be given. What good are avenues to express doubts and opinions when we know beforehand that all such avenues lead to a dead end? And why should we expect any other result than that Lucy will once more yank away the football at the last moment, leaving us yet again 
flat on our backs. The next section is titled Pre-Mortal Musings. The recent discipline of church members for voicing variant views has prompted me to reflect on the Grand Council in heaven. We all know the story. I won't repeat it here. What has been brought into sharp relief for me, however, is that the crux of the story is how Lucifer wanted to do the best thing imaginable by doing the worst thing imaginable. He wanted to save all of God's children. What could be better than that? But in order to accomplish this laudable goal, he would have to destroy the agency of man. That's how it's put in Moses chapter 4, verse 3. He would have to destroy the agency of man. Nothing could apparently be worse than that. What does this teach me? It teaches me that trampling on the agency of human beings is something God cannot tolerate, even if the reason for doing so is the best reason that could possibly be imagined, the eternal salvation of the person whose agency is being destroyed. And God appears to have practiced what he preached. God could have simply struck Satan dumb, so he could not spread his poisonous opinions like Alma did with Corihor. Or God could have told Lucifer it was all right for him to have his own opinions so long as he didn't express them in public. Or God could have told Lucifer that he could ask questions, but only to his bishop or his stake president. God appears to have done none of these things. God realized that allowing free agency necessarily involved letting his children have their own opinions together with the freedom to voice those opinions publicly. God realized that allowing free agency is a messy business. But if God were going to allow his children free agency on earth, he was going to have to allow it to them in the pre-mortal existence. Conclusion. In spite of the best efforts of the Lord's anointed, the truth about the history of the church is coming to light. It began with a trickle, but has become an avalanche with the advent of the internet, accompanied by a commensurate cascade of members leaving the church. Perhaps in the final analysis, this is why the LDS Church's fifth mission to save humanity could never have worked, because it is simply not possible to keep so much problematic information a secret. The truth will out. Nature finds a way. For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. You knew I was going to have to throw a little Shakespeare in here, didn't you? And when the truth does finally come out and the member who has been taught only the faith-promoting side of the story discovers the skeletons in the closet, the experience is usually coupled with feelings of bewilderment and betrayal. The skeletons are scary enough, but why wasn't I told they were there? Now I have to question whether anything the LDS Church tells me is true. And so the strategy of telling only one side of the story in order to build faith ends up destroying faith when the truth comes to light. This is why the course of suppressing the truth is a minefield. Everything is fine and dandy until somebody steps on one. We have seen that it is the professed goal, the professed goal, they've been public about it, I've quoted them. It is the professed goal of church leaders to teach only the faith-promoting aspects of the LDS religion. In light of this, we must ask whether their intentional suppression of the rest of the picture will deprive members of the ability to choose anything other than adherence to the general authorities and the church over which they preside. 
we must ask whether church leaders are willing to destroy the agency of man in order to ensure that all are saved, that one soul will not be lost. And ultimately, on a personal level, what I am asking is for church leaders to stop suppressing the truth, the truth regarding the history, the doctrine, and the practices of the LDS Church. Just tell us the truth. We can handle it. So that is the end of the paper that I wrote back in 2014 regarding how it is that the LDS Church intentionally seeks to suppress the full truth about the church, its history, its policy, its practices, and its doctrine. Now, I have done a number of podcasts demonstrating how it is that the church continues to suppress the truth from its members and from the world at large. But the interesting thing about this piece I wrote is that you don't have to go to all these different sources and put the clues together to figure out that's what the church leaders are doing. This is not a mystery that we have to solve by putting all the clues together. Indeed, in these three instances, we have seen church leaders publicly state that that is exactly what they're doing. The first of those people was Boyd K. Packer, who has now passed away several years ago, but at the time he passed away, he was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. The other two people that we quoted to the same effect are now the president of the LDS Church, Russell M. Nelson, and the first counselor in the first presidency of the church, Elder Dallin H. Oaks. With these last two individuals ensconced in the very highest leadership roles in the LDS Church, we should not expect them to tell us the whole truth about the church they represent, especially when they have told us that they're not going to. Well, that's about all for tonight. It's becoming very plain to me that this is going to have to be a multi-part podcast because there are indeed so many ways that the LDS Church has created over the years of giving to its members the illusion of agency. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.